Um, he, is, he is risen. And uh, Wolves and Six. Indeed. Thank you, Jonathan. Let me get my bearings here real quick. Welcome you guys to the table. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled to be with you this evening. Um, we are entering to a new space tonight, which is called the Eastertide season, where we're going to talk about the implications and the invitations attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow, thinner crowd tonight, which is fine. I'm not like judging the room as is, Debbie, right? Like it takes a shot to the ego, obviously. Right? You feel smaller than you did when you first walked in. Like, maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. Probably you. We don't know. It doesn't matter, okay? We're here together all the same. We're entering into the Eastertide season. But before we go into any kind of text tonight, um, we want to make sure that you walk away with this reminder. Regardless of any kind of homiletic material that might be thrown your way in the moments to come, um, who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Baseline, core truth, the number one thing you, we want you to make sure that is in your pockets before you leave this room tonight is the reminder that your humanity has weight. That who you are matters more than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. It's significant. It's substantial. I need those reminders all the time, and I'm hoping that that is um, helpful to you. Natalie, you're giving me that nod like, you're doing okay, Matt. You're not falling apart quite yet. Just keep on the train. That's fine. I love those encouraging head nods right there. I was going to take us into this space of Easter Tide by looking at the story of Simon Peter. But before we go there, and we actually won't go there, we're going to go to Psalm 23. But I want to say something about Easter Tide season because as a church collectively, it's not something that we have historically really been mindful of. It's always been true about the church. The calendar has always served this purpose of reminding us that we are in the aftermath of the resurrection and the cross and everything that transpired with the pastel parties last weekend. But as a church, the table, small C church, we just haven't thought much about it. But there's something I think about the pandemic that has made me consider Eastertide, that has actually made me want to dignify the seasons of the church calendar more than I had prior to. Because by a quick show of hands, and maybe I'm alone, and I'm okay being alone on this one. Has anybody else experienced this, this phenomenon where it's like, we just went, we are still going through a massive pandemic, and everything that's attached to that, and yet, like, there were 19,000 people at the Target Center last night, and it wasn't on anybody's minds. Like, it's on to the next thing. It's like, what's the next show in town? What's the next headline to grab my attention? What's the next distraction that's, that's pulling me away? Eastertide, the seasons in the church calendar, is a resistance to that impulse. It is to say that something catalytic and climactic just happened in your calendar, and we need to pause and make, have the capacity to understand what it was, what just transpired. And I'll tell you, from my angle right now, as, as somebody that tends to speak on Easter and Good Friday, it always feels like these are the most important dates on our calendar, yet we really don't get to go in the weeds. Do you know what I mean? It's like we're going to offer up a 20-minute message of sorts. We're going to talk about how, and it's all important. Resurrection means that like it wasn't an, an episode from 2,000 years ago. Resurrection is Christ, and Christ is still resurrecting our stories. That's all true, and that all is substantial and has weight. And yet it always feels like are we really considering in the wake of what went down all the implications and the invitations inside of it. And so Eastertide is a season where we just pause. It's the 50 days prior to Pentecost where the Spirit came down. It is, it is a tradition that the Christian church adopted from its Jewish forebears. It's the same kind of situation. 
Pentecost, its origins is traced to when the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they crossed the sea when it was split wide open. They recognized that with all the adrenaline, the nerves, the, the magnitude of that moment, like there was so much happening that we can't expect to just waltz in and waltz out. We need to slow our steps and actually let the story saturate in us a little bit. So that's what we try to do in this season. And so my intention was to bring us to the story of Simon Peter. And I've always been fascinated by a story, and perhaps we'll get there at some point soon. But a storm came into Minneapolis yesterday afternoon. I don't know if you're aware of it. My kids were very aware of it. I mean, like, paralyzed by fear, aware of it. And I don't know if it's a vocational hazard. That's something that comes with the office that I hold. But, and Debbie, tell me if this resonates with you at all. But I have found myself recently feeling like I need to up my intentionality around how I raise my kids. I mean, I think I'm always doing that, like, on some level intentional, but I mean, like, I want my kids to be strangely warmed by the Spirit of God. I want them to experience the soft hand of consolation in their place of desolation. I want them to be... Um, I, I, don't, I have no intention of being like, you guys need to start understanding who God is but I do want them to enjoy who God is. I do want them to have some kind of whimsical encounter that leaves them feeling more full than empty. And I've been thinking about that as of late, and this storm came yesterday, and my kids, honestly, maybe one of the reasons why I'm thinking about it as late is because through careful observation of my children, I'm recognizing that despite the fact they might show up on Sundays and loudly declare that they love the Lord, the fruits of the love have not been displayed quite yet. There's a lot of behavioral issues we're addressing in the house right now, okay? But I had this moment in the storm yesterday where um, the kids were just nervous. They, and why it's a guy where it's, I'm going to grab the local laptop and look at weather.com and find out, oh, there's a tornado in the Midwest region. That means it's coming straight from my house. And so I pulled out, reminds me like that. I pulled out this um, poem that has always meant much to me and seemed to offer a balm to them. It's a poem that we've studied together as a group before, but I, would, I just want to revisit it once again tonight. It's Psalm 23, and David writes this. Before I say it, I want to invite you to this place too. We've done this poem. Remember we did a series on this, I think a year and a half ago? Was it a year and a half ago, something like that? During the pandemic. And one of the challenges, I think, when you do a series on this is there's so much weight and good things to sink your teeth into here, but it ends up being a text that you study and not a text that you sense. It's a poem. Poems are not to be studied. They're supposed to be, like, encountered. You linger upon them. You don't try to pull them all apart and understand every, what does he mean? when You're missing it. It's like two people who are physically attracted to each other. They might make physical contact, and you might understand neurologically what's happening, but it's a different thing to be kissed. You know what I'm saying? The Psalms come to kiss. These poems come for your heart. They're not interested in engaging with your mind as much. They're trying to transcend those parameters and offer something medicinal in its place. David writes this Psalm in Psalm 23. And as I've said before, consider the millions of people who have looked at this ancient text and have held it closer to their hearts and have found some source of relief in nutritional material inside of it. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Pause real quick, so I don't think I'm going to harp on this later. Prior to this moment right here, he's talking about the Lord as a he. He leads me. He takes me here. He does this. But the moment he gets into the shadow of death, it's a you. It goes from third person to personal. When things get hard in the shadow of death, it goes from this abstract phenomenon to this hand that I'm holding. Face-to-face encounter. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. You who are here with me, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we've read this text before. We've pulled out the different pieces before. There's this um, quote that somebody sent my way recently on this art project that I'm working on. where It's from Pablo Picasso, and he says that good art comes into your life to dust away the death parts. The parts in you that are dying, the parts in you that are full of decay, good art comes in there to dust it away. And I think what's beautiful about poems like David's, the one we just digested together, is it hits you in different ways at different seasons depending on where you are, depending on what you are carrying. And as I was driving to the Target Center last night, I listened to this poem again and again. And there's a part in it that we didn't talk about before. And there's a part in it that came to dust away some some decay in me that I was not prior to aware of. And it happens in the first four words. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't know why it didn't strike a chord with me before. I don't know why this didn't jump out. I think immediately we're rushed to the oil and the green pastures and the refreshing water and all those pieces, and it just seemed to miss me. But David was a shepherd. David the shepherd is writing about the Lord is my shepherd, which means that David the shepherd is identifying as a sheep. You ever catch that before? David knows sheep more than I know sheep. I don't do nature. I don't believe there's anything great about the great outdoors. It's not my cup of tea. David knows sheep. David knows that sheep are not the fastest animals out there. David knows that sheep are not well balanced. David knows that they have no defensive mechanisms when predators come their way. They have no quills. They have no means of fighting back. David knows that sheep are lost in like a default way. Please don't check Google because I don't know 100% if this is true, but what I've been told is that sheep are one of the only few creatures on the planet Earth that actually are, they, don't, they, they lack the proper faculties to have a proper sense of direction. Their default state of being is lost. Debbie's like, I think you're lying. <laughs> and I may be, Debbie, and that's the point. But you think about what David the shepherd knows about David's sheep. And David the shepherd identifies as a sheep. And so why is it that in my life, and if I dare to presume in your life, why is it that you insist on being the shepherd? You know, we're in the season of Eastertide right now, and I hadn't considered the weight of that before. But when I thought about how David understood what sheep are like, 
and how sheep are default wired to be lost now sheep are default wired to fall into briar patches and all the other troubles that are coming their way how default are like the prime example sheep are the prime example of those beings that need help david looked at them and said and so do i why have i always insisted on being a shepherd who is without the need for help when david says i am a shepherd who identifies with the sheep so that i can actually be led by a better shepherd than i that I can actually like subscribe to. So what is it in us? And I would specifically say the American way of doing things that insists that at all times, no matter the circumstances that are actually at hand, the, fa- the things that we are actually facing, we are, are insistent upon the fact that we are fine. Even if quietly at night when everybody else falls asleep, we say out loud, no, we're not. We're not actually fine. Dad, you remember this story. I, I've told this story before, and I'll probably tell it. As long as I'm, I'm in this particular position in my life, I'm going to share this story. A couple of years back, 2019, we were in Florida, and we were in, um, we took out this one pontoon on this one day to go and, you know, sail the high seas, because that's kind of adventurers that the Mobergs are, and we went to this local beach, and my brother and I, we parked the pontoon, and Ben and I, we got into the water, and we figured, let's walk into the bay a little bit. You know, let's, let's go explore the ocean and whatnot. It seems to be a calm day. Everything was fine. And then out of nowhere, this other pontoon barges onto the scene, and they're blaring, like, Florida Georgia line. And, like, it's a frat boy house on this, on this pontoon. And so I say to Ben, I say, listen, these guys are about to shout some things. They're about to get loud. They're going to be like, um, they're going to say things like, you're too, your body is too perfect, sir. And they're going to look at Ben and go like, do you even lift? And I want you, Ben, just to not even flinch. Don't even react to them. Just ignore them, okay? Pay them no mind whatsoever. They'll probably even try to scare you and say there's a shark in the water. And so I said, Ben, let's just keep walking. It is what it is. Let them be. So Ben and I, we keep walking. And I kid you not, about five minutes later, they do the, the, that. That's what they do. They come up near us. They didn't talk about my body in particular, but they did start shouting that there's a shark in the water. I said, Ben, what did I say? Stick to the game plan, okay? We knew this would happen. This is not surprising to any of us. And then Ben and I, we kept walking. About 35, 40 seconds later, Ben slaps his hand on my chest, and he goes, well, I'll spare the expletives. But Ben says, what is that? Big fin coming directly our way. Ben and I are not the fleetest of foot, and so we do what we can to do that awkward water, waddle through the water and get to the pontoon full of frat boys thinking that that's our last chance of saving our lives. Our, our understanding of all things sharks is limited to Jaws. Jaws one through four. That's literally the extent of what we understand about sharks. And so we're booking it. And these guys are helping us into the pontoon. I, you think I just told you the worst part, but brace yourself. Because once we get in the pontoon and we start like realizing that somehow we just sidestep death. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. I say out loud as I'm looking at the distance between where we are in this boat and where my dad and the family is on the shore, and I say, hmm, I wonder how, like, we're going to get from this boat back to the shore. Like, do we just wait our time to jump back in? And every frat boy on that boat, listen to Florida Georgia Line, cocks their head and they go like, this is not Hunger Games. Like, we are obviously about to drive you back to that shore and you're going to be perfectly fine. But my point in sharing that story is that, like, that is the logical place to go, hence the cocked heads. But I would rather be recognized as somebody who has a need than be the person who requests the help of somebody else. 
There is such a reluctance, and I know it to be true in real life. Take all things pulpit to the side. If you and I were having a one-on-one conversation, like many of us do, at the end of the day, so much of our issues come down to our unwillingness, our reluctance, our our resistance towards being vulnerable enough to say, I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm scared out of my mind, and I need some help. I'm tired of holding this rod and this staff and acting like I'm a shepherd when in reality... I'm a sheep. I need a shepherd. I need somebody that has my best interest at heart. I need somebody that's going to actually help lead me towards the green pastures. What I love about the text that David wrote down in this poem that has served millions of lives since he first put it down is the idea that if you're actually, we're all going for green pastures, those places where we are fed. We are all going for those places where we'll be taken out of our thirst. We're all looking for that place of satisfaction, completion, contentment, you name it however you will. The only way to get to that place is to follow the lead of a good shepherd. The only way to follow the lead of a good shepherd is to willingly identify as the sheep. Jesus, in John 10, he looks at the people, and he looks at crappy shepherds across the field, and he says, there's a lot of people who are leading you astray. There's a lot of people who get in your head and tell you faulty ideas of how you can maximize and live your best life now, whatever it may be. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I have your green pastures in my mind. I long to take you to a place that you yourself long to go. Do you actually want to identify as a sheep so I can be a shepherd to you now? One of the things I've learned about sheep, again, limited understanding, but what I've learned is that they need, they know the voice of their shepherds. This is a true story. This, you can Google it. I'll stand on this one, okay? Sheep, if a stranger comes through the camp at night and there are a bunch of sheep laying down and the stranger starts barking at them, different kinds of orders, they will freak out, they will panic, they will rebel in their own kind of sheepish way. But they, they know the voice of their shepherd. They know the clucks of the shepherd's tongue. They know the way that he speaks to them. And so they identify with the shepherd and they follow the shepherd's lead because there is a trust baseline. As a sheep, if you have the courage to let down your guard and say that you do indeed need some help and that you are in need of a shepherd because you are only a sheep, do you actually know the shepherd's voice so that he can lead you where you're trying to go? It's hit or miss, right? Sometimes I feel like I do. Sometimes I feel like I'm guessing. My prayer for all of us as a community, and the reason why I think this has been such a balm to me in the last especially 24 hours, and I really have been sitting in it deeply today, I'm able to take an account of my life and size up the terrain around me and see all the different places that I stub my toes and the relationships that I fail and the people that I let down and the expectations that I do not live up to. And I look at it and I go, I'm trying my best, but I'm not in the green pastures. I'm doing everything I can but I'm still drinking from salt water, expecting for my thirst to be quenched. At some point, I have to set my rod and my staff down and recognize that I am not God, but there is one who is. That I am merely a sheep. How is it that this shepherd actually wants to lead to me? We pray with me. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. Jesus, you are the one who cares for us.
when we are without a compass, cares for us when we have a compass. God, you are in our corner. You have our backs. You are trying to lead us to the green pastures, Lord, to the lush fields, God, to the place where the water is refreshing and not just leaving us more thirsty. God, give us the courage to stop trying to be heroes, God, to stop trying to build our own hero projects and our own self-sufficiency systems. And trust, God, that your ways, Lord, surpass our ways. That you have our best in mind. That we are adhering to your commands and your leadership, not just out of religious obligations, God, but because you actually want what is best for us. Help us to trust that that is true, not just on Sundays, but also on Mondays. God, you are good. We are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matt's uh, message resonated with me very personally tonight. I mean, we all need a good shepherd. And uh, gosh, I, I think that's really true. Aren't we sheep and aren't we really kind of lost most of the time? And I was thinking while he was speaking about we had a loved one, a family member who had gone, who is currently going through a mental health crisis right now. And so Steve and I, for the last four or five days have been heavily involved with this. We actually ended up at the ER last night. And uh, luckily, our, our loved one is now there um, in a place that he can get the care he needs. It was, it was really pretty scary, but it, it reminded me when Matt said we are all lost. Because it wasn't just um, our family member who was lost, but we were all lost in it. We didn't know how to navigate it. I'm a pastor, I do this stuff. One of his brothers is a doctor. I mean, we still, this is, this is a loved brother. And so as we were navigating it and stepping into it, the place we turned was to God. And that was the only place we could go is to say, I'm going to give this to you and I trust you because we don't quite know what we're doing because we're lost. We all need a good shepherd. That's the reality of our lives. We don't always know how to navigate what's in front of us the loss, the heartache. And so on Sunday nights when we come together to share in communion, we are reminded that we follow a God that laid down his life. The good shepherd laid his life down for us. And in this season where Matt started, we're reminded too that we're Easter people. We are Easter people. So while we might be lost and while we need to acknowledge that we need a good shepherd, we are Easter people. We hold hope in a risen Christ. And that's what we celebrate when we come together and we break bread. The night before Jesus died, he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took wine and he poured it into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant for you. And so I invite you to take your cup and you can peel back that top layer and you can take that wafer. As you take that, hear these words, the body of Christ, the good shepherd broken for you. And as you drink from that cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. 
Please stand with me and together we'll pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. I want to tell you, and let me see if I can do it in the Cliff Notes 22nd version about Simon Peter. He's considered his story in the the story of transformation that transpires in his life in the Easter tide season, what the Easter meant to him. You have Jesus in John 1 that comes to him and says, you will no longer be Simon, son of Jonah. You're going to be someday be called Cephas, which is Peter, which means rock, which means foundational slab upon which I'm going to build my church. And then you read the story of Simon, who will be called Cephas, who will live such a life, not that you're going to be named Cephas, but that other people around you will be so aware of your transformation that they'll say, that's a foundational rock right there. That's somebody that we can build this thing up. You read his story and you go, I don't see it. He says things he shouldn't say. He suffers from like foot in the mouth all of the time. He speaks of the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. He doesn't always act the way a foundational slab should act. And I was telling Debbie that what kills me about his story, what I think is so encouraging, especially when you put it in the context of a Psalm 23, is you get to the first letter that he wrote that we have canonized and put in our Bible and have carried with us for thousands of years. And it starts with saying, I am Peter. And it ends up being like this beautiful, flourishing, like Greek language, as if it was written somebody by somebody other than a Galilean fisherman type thing. This very polished letter. But then you get to second Peter. And he doesn't say, I am Peter. He says, I am Simon Peter. And the Greek is a little less polished. It's a little more rough around the edges, a little more elementary. And the point being that even at the end of the day, when he was in his best of moments and he looked like a foundational slab, he still recognized there was a Simon within him that didn't know what he was doing, that made a mess of things, that spoke before he thought, that shot before he aimed. I am Simon Peter. I want to present to you that I'm Peter the Rock and all those things. I want to give you just the highlight reel, but if I'm being honest with you, there's still a Simon in me. There still is this mess in me. And I think that's true of all of us. Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words from the heart of God as you make your way forward as sheep in the shepherd's hands. Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, Know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Parents, we have a meeting. In